Hi, I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations, and I just finished talking with Josh King. Josh is author of the new book, Off Script, an advanced man's guide to White House stagecraft, campaign spectacle, and political suicide. Um, Josh is a former political advance man. He was director of production for presidential events under Bill Clinton, uh, and he worked on at least four presidential campaigns, Paul Simons, Mike Dukakis, Bob Carey, uh, and, of course, uh, Bill Clinton's. Um, and it's a great conversation. Josh has some tremendous stories. Um, also, given our current campaign, where none of us will look at a taco bowl the same way again, Josh totally interprets pol- political theater differently. Anyhow, the book is an excellent read, and I really think you'll like this conversation. But uh, before we begin, um, some questions. Who will win the White House, and what can we expect from the political conventions this summer, and what about the House and Senate? Well, people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now let's go to my conversation with Josh King. So uh, uh, how's life as a first time author? Do you like the attention? <laughs> you know, I uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, my wife wishes that uh, I'd do a little less, and I really pay most of my attention, say all of my attention to my day job. But uh, late nights and weekends, when I have a chance to look at my computer screen, I noodle and try and come up with some good stories that span, I'd say, Chris, the last 30 years of what I call the age of optics. Well, and But, I mean, this is kind of a I mean, page six, right? Didn't I read? Uh, I mean, you got book parties. You're, you know, I mean, page six is kind of a, uh, a big deal, don't you think? I, it is, uh, I, and I never thought I'd see my name in boldface in the New York Post. And if I did, it'd probably be for something really bad. Well, they have a but, blotter report in there. I mean, they do run that <laughs> stuff, too. Uh, I, I managed to, to fly free of the blotter, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one night to be able to go up to my friend Joe Plumeri's beautiful home uh, overlooking the Metropolitan Museum of Art, knowing that uh, Taylor Swift was partying just 300 yards from me, uh, I, I felt very good. Yeah, how funny is that? You know, what, what if she'd, like, made a wrong turn and ended up in your party? How cool would that have been? Then uh, That really would have been, been welcomed page. with open arms. And I understand that Taylor typically crashes a lot of political events from time to time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. For, so, so give me, give me the minute thirty. Uh, how, how do you get into this? I mean, obviously, uh, I know you know you, you came out of Swarthmore and and you went right in. I think you went right into Paul Simon's campaign, but but I'm not sure of it. So, so you know, how, how, what made you decide? You wanted to make uh, politicians look good for a living. I, I assume it's because you, you knew there'd never be a shortage of work. Well, growing up, where I grew up outside of Boston, you know, a lot of kids were reading comic books. I was reading Time magazine for some reason. And I, it was the 80s, and I became a, a real genuine uh, admirer of Ronald Reagan, not so much 
because of the policies, but because of the way he comported himself as president. And I knew that he didn't do it alone. He did it with a great staff led by Michael Deaver, who was his deputy chief of staff. But he also transmitted that imagery through an independent lens, through photographers like Diana Walker and Dirk Halstead of Time magazine. And so every Tuesday afternoon when the magazine would be delivered, I'd just curl up and they would bring me to places like Geneva and Tokyo and Moscow and all around the country, and I'd get to experience the presidency through the through what Reagan was doing, but through the words of people like Lance Morrow and Hugh Seide and the pictures of Walker and Halstead. And coming out of Swarthmore, not a lot of Reagan fans, but I did have a professor who was a, a uh, former congressman named Bob Edgar, who became Paul Simon's finance director. Edgar says, I know you're talking to these Wall Street firms for these analyst programs, but if you have a spare few months, would you come down to Washington, D.C. and be a lowly paid staffer on the Simon campaign? And it wasn't long uh, before I started hearing these tales from the road, Iowa and New Hampshire, that I wanted to get out there and be one of these nomadic advanced people. I happen to know the back roads of New Hampshire pretty well from a lifetime of skiing there and growing up in New England, so I was a pretty good fit. Yeah, it's a pretty good, you know, if, you're, if you only know one state, uh, and you're working on, uh, and you want to get into political campaigns. I guess New Hampshire or Iowa, those those would be the two. You, you know, mentioning Michael Deaver. I guess is he really the first? No, I guess not. I guess you got Pierre Salinger. I'm just trying to think, like, who is the one? Because it, Michael Deaver was the one that I. I mean, he was the first one that I really became conscious of as well. And I'm trying to think, was he? I mean, he obviously transformed so much. Um, but and I was going to ask, was he the first real kind of advanced communications, you know, p- political advanced guy? But I guess, no, he probably wasn't. I mean, Kennedy well, have, and, yeah. I have to know, because, of course, Kenny O'Donnell yeah. for John F. Kennedy, yeah, yeah. He, he bred a legion of young advanced people. Actually, the only other book that I know of about political advance was written by Jerry Bruno, who was a Kennedy advance man. And then if you think of H.R. Haldeman and, and John Ehrlichman, they were Nixon's advanced people before they, they came to the White House from Nixon's, with Nixon. So uh, there's a long history of, of stagecraft around the presidency. would even have to maybe go back as far as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the efforts of his son to keep him shielded from cameras and lenses that would show his disability. And then, of course, there was a lot of complicity among those uh, cameras and reporters to uh, to not reveal aspects of um, FDR's disability that he thought would show him to be weak in front of the public and the world. Yeah, no, no doubt. And there, there's certainly, I mean, the you know the the art and and science of what you uh, have done for a living certainly existed. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to think. You know, because Michael Deaver, when you just when you said the name, I mean, he really did uh, come out. You know, and 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 really, you know, become a name of his own. Uh, but there, there were others. Yeah, what you learned, I mean, Deaver was the first to have some of his craft really revealed. And what you, what I learned when I got to the White House was that Deaver would uh, fly in a government plane to many of these foreign locales where President Reagan would go and walk through a lot of the things that President Reagan would do. He would uh, decline a lot of those invitations, but of the ones that he took, he would think about, the lighting and the angles and the time of day uh, and the moment and, and the drama that would ha- unfold in front of the cameras that the White House carried with them. 
obviously the three networks and then CNN chartering an aircraft. So if you have a couple hundred reporters from the United States following a president to spots overseas, and you can tell a story for them to package up and then put back in the news or in these news magazines, uh, you have a very powerful position from which to operate. And Deaver was a, a PR man from California. He understood these things uh, in great detail, and he had Ronald Reagan's trust and, and even more importantly, Nancy Reagan's trust to, to make that character of the president as embodied by Ronald Reagan, look as good as possible on yeah. film. No, no doubt having uh, Reagan's trust is one thing, but uh, having Nancy Reagan's trust from everything that one reads, that, uh, that, was, that was really what you wanted to have. So in your book uh, deals you know, a lot in, in incredible you know, detail and storytelling and bringing you there of, of the various... Um, and kind of innumerable. I was, I was blown away. I mean, I, I knew, you know, of, you know, most of these events, I'd kind of, you know, like you, it, well, you had been involved or, or at least tangentially involved or near, um, you know, many of them. I, I have never, uh, you know, done what you did for a living. But, you know, I, I was definitely blown away by, you know, how many there are. It kind of feels like one every election cycle at the least. But let's ju just jump in, and I want to get into that, but let's jump for, for a moment um, to the present, uh, just because we're, we're in the middle uh, of a campaign that no one seems to understand. I, I really, I want you to tell me the truth. Um, was it your idea to have Donald Trump eat the taco bowl on Cinco de Mayo and tweet that he loves Hispanics? I mean, that's just, that's got your fingerprints all over it, I figure. I, I wouldn't go near that with a not with not with my fingertip or a ten foot pole. I mean, uh, but yeah. but it's it, it's worthy it's worthy of an hour in itself. Can you imagine whoever might have been with Donald Trump in his office in Trump Tower when the chili bowl is or when the taco bowl is delivered from the Trump Tower grill and someone and you know he tweets voraciously. He doesn't often tweet pictures of himself. It is Cinco de Mayo. He knows that um, uh, he needs, after having secured uh, the, enough delegates to become the presumptive nominee, to soften his image. And who is in that office that says, uh, Mr. Trump, it would be a good idea if we do a selfie with you in your taco bowl and use the phrase, I love Hispanics. And I was thinking about the study in contrast, really, when Secretary Clinton began her campaign and went out to mommy uh, Ohio on her on her long drive in the Scooby van out to Iowa, and stopped in a Chipotle to also have a taco bowl. But she's behind dark glasses and is only seen by a security camera. And I think in some ways that really defines the contrast that we have: someone who is, in Secretary Clinton, a guarded private individual wrestling with the demands of being a public figure and 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 performing every day as a presidential candidate versus a person who is so naturally an actor and a performer who needs to instead conform himself and contort himself to become a, a thinking, thoughtful politician who you might be comfortable giving the keys to the U.S. arsenal to. And on that day, Cinco de Mayo, when he says, uh, let's tweet out a picture of me having a chili bowl or a taco bowl, uh, you know, there's a lot at play there. He he's incredibly comfortable in his own skin in that office, but seeming and that tweet itself, last time I checked, had a hundred thousand retweets and a hundred thousand likes, and it, it remains to be seen, Chris, 
because so many of the lessons in my book are not about the damage that day, but the damage that happens weeks later, even months later, when their opponent makes best use of it through paid advertising. Whether that will show that he's a happy, comfortable warrior who doesn't mind having a little fun and doesn't take himself or that issue too seriously, or whether, you know, at the very moment that he could have pivoted to being a serious, thoughtful candidate appealing to a broader mass of the electorate, only reconfirmed people's biases about him. Isn't, isn't that incredible? I mean, you've been doing this for, you know, call it 30 years, and, you know, you've been following politics like I have for, you know, longer than that. Let's not get into specific numbers. And yet you've, you, you don't know. You've got no idea. I've got no idea. No one has any idea whether that was just, you know, an incredible blunder, you know, this incredible thing that's going to just be held up as the poster child of everything that's wrong, or whether it was, you know, this great move that shows that he, you know, he's in on the joke, and, you know, he, he, he gets it, and, and it ends up being no big deal, and maybe even not no big deal, but something that's kind of, you know, in some weird way, positive for however many people end up voting for him. I mean, how can you, it's like he's post- I, I keep thinking to myself in terms of your book, he's like, is, is he post-optics? I mean, do optics not even matter with him? It's funny, Chris. The last chapter of my book is called The New Age of Optics. Yeah. And it ends on Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump and their contrasting styles. I had to put my pen down basically on New Year's Eve, so I can't, couldn't capture a lot of the stuff that's happened over the last few months. But believe me, the paperback edition will, will have some interesting final uh, words in a new chapter. But um, what I think is that in the old days, and so many of the stories that I tell, the amount of choice and variety that we had on television to say nothing of online, and that every campaign after 2004 was affected by that, uh, had such so much less imagery that anything bad we would or good or great we would adhere to for much longer now the the taco bowl incident or taco gate happens on may 5th that's last week and yeah it was the focus of chatter for a few days but here we are a week later and the focus of chatter is a feud or a or a presumed feud between trump and paul ryan the taco bowl is history but what will be interesting is if the Taco Bowl has the same residual staying power of three things that happen in my book. One was Dukakis in the Tank, then made into an ad by Sig Rogish and put on the World Series. Two was John Kerry windsurfing, made into a flip-flop ad by Mark McKinnon, aired several weeks later. Three was Mitt Romney singing America the Beautiful at the Villages in Florida. He did that in January, and it became the disastrous for him firm's ad that aired in June of 2012. So you have to leave it to the creativity and the money of Secretary Clinton or super PACs to say, how can I keep reminding people even weeks later, or most when it matters, September, October, November, of maybe the downside of Taco Gate, or people won't do it, or they won't be funny about it, and they'll waste money doing it. Yeah, I guess with social media, with the fact that, you know, and I, I, I don't know if you if I heard you say this the other night uh, in your Daily Show uh, appearance or 
uh, if I came up with it, if it, if it's good, it's probably something that uh, I heard from you, and I'm trying to call off on my own. Always yeah. take credit for yourself. <laughs> no doubt, but but that uh, you know, like, isn't every second of the day now a photo op? I know. Actually, I think we both thought of it because I was thinking about it in terms of my conversation here, and then you talked about uh, Hillary Clinton and the subway card, you know, miss swipe, right. and the twenty cameras right there, and by the time she got to the Matt Lauer interview, you know, it was already out uh you know in social media that that the that the uh, metro card swipe in the new york subway didn't work wherever that was 161st 163rd street but but it, i mean isn't every second of the day now a a photo op and so i guess yeah trying to determine what's going to stick and what's not going to stick so much harder than ever before absolutely and that's why even though you won't find me in the voting booth pulling for Donald Trump, I give the man uh, great respect for his brand consistency since he first descended the gilded escalator at Trump Tower and declared his candidacy. Consistency, not necessarily on political message, but consistency on stagecraft and appearance. We've really seen him only in two costumes, blue suit with tie, blue suit, white open shirt, or khakis, blue blazer and golf shirt, sometimes accessorized by the red hat. We haven't seen him doing many goofy things on the trail. We haven't seen him gorging himself, although that's been written about by Mark Leibovich on his 757 as he plows into a huge plate of potatoes au gratin. But he's so conscious of the camera uh, that you won't see him doing this. And that's why, while you didn't see him actually put taco to teeth in Taco Gate, the idea that he would use a moment uh, photographically to send a message that could be misconstrued was in some ways un-Trump. Uh, he's otherwise very, very conscious of this. And that's what I found. That's one of the things that I found interesting about that. Yeah, no, no, no doubt that uh, all new sets of books. In fact, yeah, you're right. The, the, the paperback version of your book, um, you may you know, not necessarily have to do a complete rewrite, but you might be able to double the length of it because uh, the, the lessons that we're learning uh, or will learn from this campaign um, or, or like Halpern and Heilman, a second book, which yeah. uh, they picked up so well. <laughs> Even smarter, yeah. Now you know. Now, now we're all learning. So, so uh, let's go back. You, you started to talk about some of them, uh, and you do spend uh, obviously a lot of time um, in your book on uh, the Dukakis uh, general dynamics tank incident. Um, uh, you know, you you make uh, you make very clear that you weren't uh, responsible for the tank disaster, um, so, which I guess, of course, leads to the logical question: If you weren't responsible for it, why in the heck didn't you stop it? Well, I was probably twenty three years old at the time, Chris, and probably a couple states away. I wasn't there. Okay, uh, it was okay. All's, on all's the forgiven. In Sterling Heights, Michigan. By by my uh, person who has subsequently become a lifelong friend named Matt Bennett. Matt also was 23 or 24 years old and was sent out to Sterling Heights as a young advanced person because that spring and summer, Dukakis had taken what had been a 17-point lead and found himself by Labor Day in a polling deficit against Vice President Bush. One of the reasons why he was uh, not performing at the polls was a perception that, at least compared to Bush, the war hero, Bush, the envoy to China, Bush, the CIA director, that he wouldn't be as strong a commander-in-chief. And so there were lots of efforts in the summer of 1988 
to portray Dukakis as a thoughtful uh, leader who could focus more on uh, building up America's conventional deterrence than uh, some of Ronald Reagan's uh, more fantastical aspirations for Star Wars. And one of the things that they looked at was the beating back the Soviet Union across the Iron, Iron Curtain. And one of the ways you do that is with a 70,000-pound uh, tank called the M1A1 Abrams. And uh, it was a, a new, re- relatively new tank at the time. And if they could put Governor Dukakis uh, with a backdrop of these tanks to talk about how it would be better to build up the conventional deterrent rather than build up Star Wars, uh, it might show that Dukakis had an alternative to Reagan and Bush. But as advanced people in campaigns often do, they say, well, we need color for this. We need art. We need a photo to go along with the speeches that Governor Dukakis is going to make on this, on this week of campaigning around national defense issues. So they say, let's put Dukakis in an M1A1 and allow it to go through its paces. And they plan this out across the proving ground at General Dynamics Land Systems. And they say, well, if you're going to go at 45 miles an hour using these U-turns and S-turns and putting the tank through its, its full maneuvers, you're going to have to wear a helmet, a helmet both to hear what your tour guide is saying and also to protect you because your upper torso is going to be exposed. And it's the combination of Dukakis doing it in the first place, the particular costume that he wore and the gray coveralls and the helmet, and the angle that he had by... Uh, unexpectedly his driver veering that tank incredibly close to the press riser so that they got such high-quality, up-close shots of the governor baring his teeth with his labeled helmet stenciled across the brow that exposed him ridicule, to ridicule not only that day, but the five weeks later after Sig Rogish aired his ad. And so you you point out so much uh, fantastic detail about the about it. Um, to, to, so to follow up on some of it, um, you talk about the helmet being oversized and the, the his name being stenciled on there. Did they was that was that General Dynamics? Was that somebody or somebody at the plant said um, we should have a helmet for him and maybe didn't get the the hat size? Right or how, how did how did the helmet happen? Do you know? Do you well, know? Yeah, the, the helmet happened because it had to happen, uh, and and we would make too much of it to call it oversized. Although I do call it oversized. Yeah, it I, was say, I, think it was, I think it was your but, word. But I'm sure that it fit just fine. Right. Uh, there was a problem. Uh, there's there's always a problem, Chris, when you put words on anything that's going to be photographed. They happen to put a sticker that said Mike Dukakis in oversized letters across the brow, so that when you took his picture, it was as if he was trying to be Pete Maverick Mitchell, the character played by Tom Cruise in Star Wars, that he would actually be a tank jockey with his name on it. And that's one thing that played into this comedic element of the ride. Uh, You know, it also recalls what happened in 2003 when... President George W. Bush went to flew actually tail hooked onto yeah. the USS Abraham Lincoln and gave his speech. Now he gave his speech in front of sailors and airmen, uh, talked about the cessation of hostilities in Iraq. 
there happened to be two words behind him that were placed by the advance team. They said, what did they say? They said, mission accomplished. I mean, you're totally right. And, and, and it, was, it was, I mean, that's all we remember. That's, that's, that's the mission accomplished. That's all we remember. Yeah. And if those two words hadn't been there, Chris, would we be still remembering that visit to the Lincoln? It was because the decision, and there's a long story in the book about how mission accomplished was a reference actually to the Abraham Lincoln and her crew, which had accomplished its mission of the longest deployment of an aircraft carrier since Vietnam. But there's no doubt that the White House decided to position those words strategically above the president's head in the national television feed tight shot so that it couldn't be missed. And so if President Bush goes out to the aircraft carrier and gives a a speech on national television at 6 p.m. on the East Coast, 3 p.m. on the West Coast, magic hour as it's called, the bravado of the advance team got a little over ahead of itself and certainly connected Bush with those words that we know all too well for the next many years uh, was a, a premature declaration. Yeah, they're they're right up there with uh, heck of a job. I mean, they're you know they're you know heck of a job, Ronnie. They're just a few phrases, and and you're absolutely right. The the positioning of mission accomplished there, and obviously given with it, you know the state of how things were uh, in Iraq at that time, and then you know obviously subsequently what occurred. Um, it's it's like you know the the reciprocal it was you know of of that is is what actually. Um, you know, was what happened. T- tell me just the, the, the postscript on uh, Dukakis and the tank. Um, it, it, Matt Bennett, um, you, you, as you point out, you're, you're, you know, you still have a relationship with him and you talk about that in the book. Um, you know, talk to us about, uh, talk to me about what he's doing now and, and some of the gun control stuff. So, I mean, yeah. he really, I mean, he went way beyond that and, and I mean, he was involved in it or, or whatever. He got assigned it, I guess. And, yeah. uh, you know, a bit, uh, you know, bad, you know, drawing the short straw on that assignment, I guess. Totally short straw. Yeah, really, it was a really short so, straw. Uh, um, you know, Matt, Matt at the time, Chris, was a 23-year-old newly minted graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. His father is, was a professor at Syracuse University in political science, probably a fairly left-leaning family. Uh, and Matt had done his senior thesis on the dangers of the military-industrial complex, just like Dwight Eisenhower uh, had said in his farewell address. So even though Matt looked like a button-down Republican, because he's a good-looking guy and, you know, he's fairly close-cropped, uh, you know, in his heart, he had great conflicts with going to General Dynamics to uh, make us, to put a tank into a starring role. And so Matt, uh, after the campaign, he and I worked, he, I think he did a few years at a law firm. He did a few, he did a tour at the White House under President Clinton. He became, uh, I think the head of, uh, a head of a department. And then he became, um, Vice President Gore's trip director. So probably the lead advance person for the vice president moving up to the 2000 election did a tour then with uh, General Wes Clark in his aborted 2004 campaign. But over the past 10, 15 years, Matt has been uh, leading a think tank in Washington called Third Way, which really does try to find that common ground between Democrats and Republicans on key issues, and really found himself uh, in some ways sadly, but in some ways he was the perfect guy for the for the role to be the 
the um, helper and uh, and support mechanism for the families of the uh, the uh, Sandy Hook, yeah, of the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. And so Matt has always been a for the last for most of this century one of the foremost experts on sensible handgun. Uh, handgun issues in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, uh, you know, incredible work being done there and, uh, you know, fascinating to, to hear all the other things that, that he had done. Um, you know, you, you were mentioning uh, uh, Clinton. Obviously, um, you were director of production for presidential events under uh, President Bill Clinton. And I, I would I just have to assume that, um, you know, that the, the, your, your kryptonite has to be I would think, maybe not, you'll tell me, spontaneity, right? I mean, you've got to, you go through details and you want everything planned and, and you want whatever is your, you know, uh, I, I don't mean this negative, you know, your mission accomplished, but, but in a positive way, not in a negative way. You, you, you know, you plan out where everything's going to be and then something spontaneous can occur and you're like, come on, man, I, I, you know, I've got this all planned out and yet you're, Working for you know President Clinton, you know to us, you know who've never worked with him or or met him, you know he appears to be you know this obviously um, you know very spontaneous at times and you know and a political theater master on his own right. And so, to, what, what what was it like for someone who did what you did um, working for someone like him? Well, it, it was like walking a tightrope every day because uh, Bill Clinton has been doing this since Georgetown, his Rhodes Scholarship, Yale Law School, yeah. his first campaigns, and then moving up through uh, his political life back in Arkansas. And uh, he, he had his own radar. Uh, there were so many days, Chris, when uh, you would think that you'd put a campaign day to bed, that you had the sound bites all recorded from the event, that the photographs were taken just the way that you planned them out, and he's in a motorcade going back to the hotel in whatever city we are, and he sees a small gaggle of people across the street or uh, a few local reporters who are shouting questions at him, and he always, for so long, had found that hard to resist. So even as we are trying to count down the minutes before we uh, do what's, what's called calling the lid, which is you know the president is in his hotel suite for the night and has promised that he won't go out, therefore you can go down to the bar and grab a beer. Instead, he has decided to beeline to those five people on the street corner or that local reporter to answer a couple of questions, and suddenly you have him speaking completely off script about something as far removed from your day's events as you could imagine. And, uh, and so, you know, advanced people, whether for Bill Clinton or for uh, those who are campaigning in this cycle, you get to a new city and you're given your rough marching orders about what they're trying to accomplish. You are trying to channel what a TV uh, camera person or a producer or a correspondent would like to get to be able to have a saleable package for their editors and producers back in New York and Washington. You're trying to think about the photojournalists who are trying to sell their wares across the photo wires to get their pieces on the front page of the newspapers around the country, and serving up that, that drama in front of those lenses. But invariably, as you say, 
the spontaneity will intrude and something completely different happens. And the book has plenty of examples of that. Uh, One was um, uh, I was with President Clinton in Lyon, France, and I wanted to stage a news conference uh, outdoors in front of a beautiful bucolic pond and uh, a a cloud of millions, perhaps billions of gnats uh, were surrounding the presidential podium. And I sprayed it with a compound that I thought was in, in, uh, insect repellent that I purchased in a little uh, five-and-dime store in, in Lyon in France, but I couldn't read the writing. And what I understood later it was uh, insect killer uh, written in fine print, a toxic substance that the president, under the withering heat of the TV lights and, the nine, and uh, a hot day, started sweating and then rubbed, went, his hands went from the podium into his eyes, and by the end of it, he looked like Rocky Balboa at the end of 15 rounds of the Apollo Creed. And uh, those are, that's a day when you hear that Leon Panetta, the White House chief of staff, is making angry calls back to Air Force One and asking what was going on with those gnats. And the message is, you know, don't even bother to come home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, that was – and when, when I got to the part where he's uh, rubbing it in his eyes, I was like, oh, man, you know, I, I guess uh, King was getting his uh, resume – Ready. I mean, I, I was poisoning the president. Yeah, I had no I idea, but, you know, know. <laughs> these are the decisions you make on the fly to try and get those flies out of the shot. Yeah. I mean, yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, great idea. Um, cha- you know, challenge to execute. But it was it was in French. What, uh, you know. Um, they don't teach French at advanced school. They teach a lot of other things. <laughs> that's the real lesson. That's that's the takeaway. Um, to, study to, hard. Yeah, study hard. To, to to just close things out, let's let's look forward. Um, I, I think the next real massive, unbelievable can't miss political theater will have to be the conventions this summer. I mean, barring anything else happening, I guess on the Democratic side of the uh, um, you know of the camp. I mean, there will be events. You know, the 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 Paul Ryan Donald Trump meeting. I mean, there will be certain events, but but you know, we're we're kind of standing by for the for the conventions at this point. So um, I guess one, what are your expectations? Two, if you know how how let's start just on the, maybe particularly on the Republican side and with the tensions between the RNC and, you know, Republican establishment and, you know, none of the former, you know, candidates, uh, Republican candidates are going to show up and, you know, but then Trump and his people and his sense, what, what's going on right now? What, 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 you know, if you're an advanced person, um, are you just going out of your mind right now? Yeah, all hell is breaking loose in Cleveland as they're getting ready for the Republican convention. There's two milestone moments between, or one milestone moment between now and the conventions, Chris, and that's when both candidates will announce their vice presidential candidates, uh, or their vice presidential selections. And we remember the excitement around John McCain's selection of Sarah Palin uh, and, and the sort of wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, Barack Obama's selection of Joe Biden that was texted to everyone who had pre-registered with the Obama campaign. And so those moments will come and go. But if you, you're not necessarily an advanced person if you're planning the convention. These are often Hollywood producers hired to put on the best possible show in Cleveland and Philadelphia for the Republicans and the Democrats. Yeah. But what these producers need most is certainty. Uh, and they need someone to uh, talk to and to prove their their stagecraft plans. They need to choreograph three nights of political theater that will be 
broadcast gavel to gavel by C-SPAN and some of the cable networks. And if they, um, if, it, if they don't get someone from the Trump campaign to coordinate with the RNC and all of the talent who will need to fill up all that airtime on the podium, uh, they're definitely pulling their hair out. And interestingly, if you think going back to the beginning of our conversation with Ronald Reagan being such a master of stagecraft and Michael Deaver enabling that, uh, you expect Republicans to put on a show, a great show. But over the years, their conventions have been stymied by all sorts of problems. Most recently, Mitt Romney in Tampa in 2012. One, he had to cut it a day short because of an impending hurricane. And two, there was this issue of Clint Eastwood and a chair. And so there are so many things that can go wrong, even if you if it's so simple as no one was able to talk to Mr. Eastwood before he gave his remarks. Right. I was going to say, when you were saying they're looking to, you know, how, how are they going to manage the time and make sure to properly fill the time uh, in Cleveland? I, I was going to, you know, ask, well, do you think that uh, Clint Eastwood might be available? But they, they probably won't go back and, uh, and, and do that again. Um, anyhow, it'll, uh, it'll be in, incredible theater, and uh, your book, uh, Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide, really just a, a, a wonderful read of, uh, you know, what's gone on um, in, you know, quasi-recent history. We're not going back uh, in the early 1900s or the 1800s, but it really, really, really covers um, you know the, the those moments that many of us uh, remember, and uh, it's just it's a it's a great read, and uh, um, you know thank you for it, and thanks uh, thanks for taking the time to have the conversation today, Josh. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a great summer. We'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Mm-hmm.